I love it when we don't do things predictable. Some of you guys are trying to figure out what to do with the stand and greet. So I'm going to give you a minute to make eye contact with somebody and wave while I get myself organized here. Morning. I heard somebody, they're going to do it. I got to do it. Hey, um, I just want to take one second and recognize uh, Norflet, Janae, and the kids. If you guys stand up for a second, they're here. Uh, if you ever get a chance to sit in front of them during worship, that was a treat for me to listen to you guys worship. Thanks for singing the way you did. But Norflet is our new worship leader. We're going to get to hear much more. Uh, director of the worship arts department. He'll be here uh, next week. We'll, you'll get to hear a lot more from him, but super glad you guys are here, and that was really awesome. Thank you. Hey, um, real quick before I get into the message, uh, the men's retreat is coming up, something that we call the, the stand. Um, it's going to happen in March. Uh, we've got a wonderful uh, keynote speaker for it. He's going to do a great job. It's a guy who's had an impact in my life. I know he'll have an impact in yours. Um, Bob is awesome. It's just a great great thing for the guys to be a part of. I would love for us to just fill that up right away, make the uh, job of the guys organizing a lot easier. So if you're feeling the nudge at all from God to be a part of that, or if you're feeling the nudge from your wife to be a part of it, um, maybe you want to just sign up today. There'll be a key aspect there, but we'd love for you to be a part of the stand, which is just, it's always a great experience to uh, be together as men and talk about what it means to follow the Lord as men, to lead in the context of our homes and at work and and all the things that God is calling us to. Um, also, immediately following the service, both services next week, uh, we have a team that's going to Istanbul, Turkey, to uh, one, lead worship for a conference, and then also help with childcare. Uh, but we need people to join both of those teams. Um, so immediately following both services next week, you can get information. If you go to the meeting, you're not committed. So you can go and just be there to find out, well, what does it all mean? What is it actually about? Um, but that trip happens in August. It's a great place to go. Um, it'll be a great experience. So that's after both services. And then immediately following the service today is a baptism class. So if you've felt the nudge from the Lord to be baptized, if you've made a commitment to follow Christ and you haven't been baptized, um, then I'm speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's nudging you to get baptized because that's what we do in obedience. So if you haven't done that and you would like to know more immediately following this service, there's a class upstairs on baptism. So grab your Bibles, turn to Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 5 through 11. I'm hoping your Bibles automatically fall open to Philippians. We've been in it for a while, but I hope that you're spending time in it at home as well. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Got it yet? One more second. Please. I always like, you know, I don't know if you guys know it, but it hasn't happened so far. The second service is much more interactive, so you guys feel free to let me know if you're out there. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Paul is writing and he says, Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and by being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Amen. Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing letter. Thank you for 
just the, the buzz that it stirred here at Grace. There are so many people who are talking to me about reading Philippians, even between the services, people talking about how Philippians is having an impact in their lives. And I just love the fact that you are using this letter to stir something in us as a church. I pray even now as we unpack uh, these, these seven verses that you would just use it to grow us. Lord, our prayer is always that we would leave here different than we came that we would not be about playing church, that this is, would not be just some box to check that we went to church this week, but that your Holy Spirit would actually bring about change in us and that we would leave different. Lord, we want to be who you've called us to be, and we just pray that over these next few minutes as we unpack this amazing passage that you would do what only you can do. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that he is welcome here. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we are in the middle of a series we're calling A Satisfied Life. This is week four of looking at the letter to the Philippians. And what we've talked about is that the satisfied life is a life with more joy, a life with more courage, and a life with more contentment. But what we've already seen as we've studied this letter is that that joy and commitment isn't circumstantially dependent. It's not based on what's going on around us. It's based on something more than that. So in Philippians, Paul prays for the church. He prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Because the more we know God, the more we know God's sovereignty in our lives, the more we know how much God loves us, the more we're able to be content, the more we understand that God is using all of our life circumstances to to advance the kingdom, the more we can be content in all of our circumstances. That contentment and joy and courage isn't circumstantially driven, but it's driven by our knowledge and understanding of God. We also have talked a lot about it, but that Philippians makes the most sense when we understand it in context, when we remember that Paul is writing from a prison in Rome, a dark, damp, oppressive, nasty prison. And he writes what's been come to know as the letter of joy from a prison cell. That in itself is pretty extraordinary when you just, when you just think about that. The conditions that Paul were in, the, the things that he was suffering, and he writes to us what becomes known as a letter of joy. Again, not circumstantially driven, but driven around Paul's understanding and knowledge of who God is and how God was using his life to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. The other thing that we need to hold on to is that there is this thread that runs throughout the entire letter, and the thread is, is unity. There is some discourse in the church in Philippi, a couple of women actually who who aren't getting along, and Paul has that in mind when he's writing this letter. He actually is thinking about them, and he's writing a letter informing them not only to be united, but how to be united. So we see passages like in Philippians 1.27, Paul says, striving together as one for faith in the gospel. Remember, striving together is that kind of an athletic term. It's like a team all pulling together. Perfect thing to think about on Super Bowl Sunday. The the team that works the best together, the team that pulls together, strive together as one is going to win. And Paul is using a, a sports analogy here. And he says that we are to strive together as one. We're to be one. Philippians 2.2, he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, being one in mind. You can see unity throughout that whole passage. And then Philippians 2.14, he says, do everything without arguing or complaining. Do everything without complaining or arguing. So we see Paul giving us these instructions. And in some ways, it's kind of one thing to say, be united. Hey, don't argue and complain. Uh, Get along with each other. Be one. Be like-minded. Have the same love. So he can say all those, but it's a whole other thing to, to tell us how. 
It's one thing to say it. It's a whole other thing to, to ask ourselves the question and to receive what Paul says in the answer to the how question. How am I to be united? How am I to be like-minded? And the passage that we're going to look at today really is a picture for us of how we are to actually do this. But here's the deal. One of the things that we can know right away If we want to be more united, the way we respond to suffering, the way we respond to any type of of circumstances that come our way that that knock us off off our path or cause us to be be uncomfortable, any time that we have any level of suffering, the way we respond to it will affect our unity. Think about it this way. If, If I'm in a situation where things aren't going my way, if I allow that to cause me to be to be angry or embittered or even anxious All of that will spill over into my relationships in the way of anger or irritability. You all know that. When things aren't going well outside of your your home, sometimes they don't go so well inside your home either, right? You get what I'm saying? But imagine if you have this high level of contentment. If you really do know how much God loves you, if you really do know how much God's done for you, and if you really do understand that God uses all circumstances to, to good for those that love the Lord, if that's really part of your DNA, really part of your way of thinking, when things aren't going well, when there's chaos, when there's suffering, and you have contentment inside of you, you are naturally going to be more gracious with people. You're going to be less irritable. You're going to show people more grace. You're going to be more receiving of people. It will have a huge impact on our unity. So we need to learn to be content if we want to be united. So it's in this this stream or this thread of unity that Paul writes these amazing seven verses that we're about to to unpack. And what I do want you to hear right right from the start is I know there is nothing easy about what we're teaching today. It is a very monumental challenge that Paul is putting before us. So I kind of want us to just own that. Like this is one of those passages that we need to grow into, that we need to learn to to apply more and more in our lives. And it would be easy for us to be uh, full of shame when we read something like this and thinking, I'm not there. Well, guess what? I'm not there. Most of us, none of us are really there. This is a challenge for us to live into, okay? So open your Bibles if you haven't, if you haven't left them open, but we're going to start reading in verse 5. Paul writes these words. He says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. So one of the challenges of preaching is teaching in any case is to leave you with something that you're going to hold on to, to leave you with a phrase or something that's memorable. So, so pastors and teachers work hard to think, how can I make this, this something that people will remember when they walk outside of these doors? Whenever you sit through a good uh, a preaching, good thing, usually there's something that sticks in your head. That's why it talks like, I have a dream, right? We remember it because there was something there we held on to. Or if you've ever heard the my king is talk, he says my king is over and over. When you leave the room, you remember that talk because there was something that you held on to. So there's usually some kind of phrase, something that's memorable. Well, the beauty is I didn't have to do that this week. Paul did the hard work for me. There's something here that we ought to be able to walk away from. The funny thing is, when I first started thinking about the sermon, that is the sermon. That's really all we need to think about. This ought to challenge you for the rest of the day. It ought to challenge you for the rest of the week. And really, it ought to challenge you for the rest of your life. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. That's enough for us to think about. But because they pay me to preach, I have to go on even longer. But anyway, he says, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. And when he says attitude, some of your your Bibles probably translated that same word mindset. Your way of thinking. 
the patterns that are grooved into your mind. Did you know that our minds actually have pathways of thinking? That there's a, a way of thinking, there are response patterns that are grooved into our mind. And Paul is saying, you need to re-groove your mind. You need to re-adjust your mind so that your way of thinking, your mode of thinking is like Christ Jesus. I think it's amazing that he doesn't say it's similar to Jesus or it's a close facsimile. What he says is, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. The other thing I love about this is if you break down the original language, it actually says that you should have this mindset among yourselves. It's plural. And what that means to me is it's not this, this lone cerebral exercise. It's just not something about me. What Paul is actually saying is this is the way you are to think about. This is the way you are to respond. This is the way you are to, to come towards one another. It's a, it's a communal command. Our mindset should be the same as Christ Jesus. Our way of seeing each other and responding to each other in community should be the same as Christ Jesus. So, what's our mission statement here at Grace? We are... Yeah, we are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. We are a mosaic striving, working together, locking arms like, a, like an athletic team all moving in the same direction. We are striving together to live like Jesus. What does it mean to live like Jesus? Well, if we are going to live like Jesus, it starts with thinking like Jesus. I love this because it's, a, it's kind of an inside-out transformation. It's not just changing our behaviors. This isn't about behavioralism. It's actually cleaning the inside of the cup, allowing the Spirit of God to change the way we think so that we're thinking like Jesus, so that it changes the way we respond. It changes the way we behave. It's not just changing the outside, but it's allowing God to make change on the inside. If we are to love like Jesus, if we are to serve like Jesus, if we are to live like Jesus, then we have to learn to think like Jesus. Jesus. And Paul is saying to you and I, your attitude, your mindset, your way of thinking, your way of responding to everything around you should be the same as Christ Jesus. And then to explain to us, if you just left it there, we would say to ourselves, well, how did Jesus think? Well, what was Jesus' mindset? And so what he does for the rest of this passage that we're looking at is he explains to us exactly what the mindset of Jesus was. So that's where we're going to continue. Verse 6, Paul says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is one of the places in Scripture that served to inform us and let us know that Jesus was and is and is to come God. That Jesus always was equal with God. He was always part of the Holy Trinity. He always was divinity. And it's important for us to know that because some people would try to teach you, some religions would even say that Jesus was a good man. That Jesus was a good man who lived a good life. Maybe even the best man that ever lived. And he did some amazing things. And some religions would even say that because he was so good and because he did good things he, and even because of the cross, God elevated him and made him part of the Godhead. That is not truth. The truth is, and we see it here, Jesus was and is and is to come. He was 
God. He was part of the triune God for all eternity. And the thing that we need to understand is what Paul's trying to teach us is, is, that, is that Jesus did not consider his equality with God, something that he's had for all eternity, something to be grasped, is what the passage says. Or another way of saying it is he didn't see it as something to take advantage of. And it's really important that we understand this because really everything else that Paul is going to teach us through this passage hinges on us understanding what it is Jesus did. What was his mindset? So he was God. He was equal to God. He had this power and he had this position with God, but he didn't see it as something to be held onto or taken advantage of, but he let go of that. And what the difference is Jesus could have said, no, I'm God. I'm the one who's supposed to be worshiped. I'm the creator God. I'm the one that spoke the whole world into existence. I do not need to stoop to the level of washing people's feet. I'm God. I don't have to come to earth and be spit on and beaten. I'm God. I don't have to go to the cross. I have a rightful place alongside my my father. I have a rightful place as part of the, the trinity. I have all of these rights and all of these privileges. But the passage says what? Look at verse 7. It says he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant and the word there is actually slave by taking on the nature of a slave and being made in human likeness some of your passages say he poured himself out Paul is telling us what was the mindset of Christ what is Christ's way of thinking and the first thing that we need to understand is Christ didn't take advantage of his position he took what was rightfully his and he poured them out on behalf of you and I He poured them out on behalf of you and I. And then Paul says, hey, guys, your attitude, your way of behaving, your way of thinking, your way of responding to each other should be the same as Christ Jesus, that we don't hold on to what is rightfully ours, that we're willing to give up our power and our position and not lord over people. Okay, so that's the first thing we got to hold on to, that he poured himself out. Quick theological note, and I just think it's important. One of the things that I love about this passage is it gives us a lot of theology. There is a lot packed into these few verses that people have talked about for centuries and centuries. But one of the things that we just need to know theologically is when Jesus came to earth, he did not give up his divinity. He did not stop being God. What he did is he gave up some of the things that were rightfully his for that season of time. Does that make sense? So he stayed God through the entire time and that's important for us to understand. But Jesus willingly gave up what was rightfully his. And if that wasn't enough, Paul continues to tell us about this this downward mobility, this movement of Christ towards us in in what he did. So look at verse eight. It says, in being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And I really want you to hang on to that word, humbled himself, because we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about that. But Jesus The Godhead, Jesus, divinity, humbled himself. Who did the work? Jesus. He humbled himself. We need to hold on to that. And he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Jesus doesn't grasp what's rightfully his. He takes on human form and he allows himself to be totally humiliated and be crucified on the cross. And here's the deal. We totally miss the shock Uh, the outrage uh, of the cross you know we've cleaned the cross up we we wear them 
as necklaces. We put them behind us in our churches. The cross has become a, a, an awesome symbol. So it's a good thing to have a cross. It's not a bad thing, but it's a pretty cleaned up thing. In the Greco-Roman world, mention of the crucifixion was equivalent to, to mentioning the most nastiest word you can think of, the worst curse word you can think of. It was bad taste to ever even mention crucifixion. Crucifixion was the most, most heinous, most, most brutal form of execution. And it was a form of execution that the Roman Empire reserved for the lowest of the low. It was the form of execution that they reserved for people who most commonly were slaves, the lowest class people. And it was the most brutal form of execution. So even to mention the word crucifixion, or to mention the cross, would have been very bad taste in the Greco-Roman world. We kind of miss that. We miss the brutality of it. And so, so Paul actually says in um, 1 Corinthians one twenty-three, he says, we preach Christ crucified. We, people who are, are bringing the gospel, preach Christ on the cross. We preach about the crucifixion, and it's a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness for the Gentiles. Because of the brutality of it, because of the, the, the way, what it represented from the Roman Empire, it was a stumbling block for the Jewish people. They would say to themselves, how could the Messiah, how could the one who's supposed to come and sit on David's seat, how could that man allow himself to be humiliated in such a heinous way? How could he allow himself to actually go onto the cross, the very epitome of the oppression of the Roman people? So it's a stumbling block for the Jews. You know what? If you study uh, what's going on in the, in, in the Jewish people right now, this is still a stumbling block for them. There is no way the Messiah would allow himself to be crucified. It's a stumbling block for them. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles who would say, what kind of a God would allow himself to be killed, not just killed, but killed on a cross, without doubt, the most brutal death anyone has ever faced. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block for the Jews. And Paul says, hey, um, your attitude, yeah, yeah, your attitude, your mindset, your way of thinking, it's supposed to be the same as Christ Jesus. Look, this is a, heavy thing. This is an amazing thing that Paul is calling us to. Jesus had everything, right, but let all that go willingly to, to suffer the most brutal death that could be suffered. The, the movement from where he was to where he ended up was so great that anything God's asking us to do in between is going to be pretty palatable when we compare it to that. But Paul says, look, that's the way you're going to make God known. That's the way you are going to bring glory to God. Look at verse 9. Paul now shifts gears and he says, this is what Jesus did. He went from the highest of the high to the lowest of the low. And this is how God responded to that. He says, therefore, because of all of this, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To the glory of God the Father means to make God known. Jesus came and made this incredible movement towards us to make God known, to show us the Father's love. He was never more modeling who God was as when he was hanging on that cross, showing us the love of Christ and what links God would go to to save you and I. And he says, your attitude should be the same. You should be willing to give up your rights, to humble yourself and to serve people so that you make God known. 
Make sense? But, but what's in here is he says that, that Jesus humbled himself. And I want us to hang on to that because it, it's, 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 it's a good thing for us to think about for just a little bit. Matthew 23, 12. There's a, there's a warning in Matthew 23, 12, and there's also a promise in, in Matthew 23, 12. It says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. That's the warning part, right? Whoever builds themselves up, whoever is a self-promoter, whoever walks in pride, pride comes before the fall, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. But look at the promise. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. God will exalt you. It's an amazing truth that we need to hold on to because the scripture tells us that Jesus humbled himself. He did the work and God exalted him. And not only did God exalt him, but he gave him the name that's above every name so that there's power in the name of Jesus. There's healing in the name of Jesus. There's strength in the name of Jesus. There's an ability to read a passage that says your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus and be able to say, I can't do this on my own, but the Holy Spirit in me through the power of God, through the power of Jesus' name, I can begin to live into that passage, I can begin to live into that type of attitude, that way of responding, that way of thinking towards other people. Impossible to do on your own. Absolutely impossible. But there is power in the name of Jesus. Okay, so we have this passage. Remember, it's, it's Paul explaining to us how it is we're supposed to be united. What I want to do is I want to back up just a little bit and I want to put this passage into the context of what Paul has already taught because it'll all come together, so bear with me. So in Philippians 1.27, Paul says these words. We've already studied this, but I want to give it to you again. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for faith in the gospel. What's he saying there? He's saying be united. Live into Jesus' prayer in the garden. Remember Jesus' prayer in the garden. I pray that they'll be one, just as you and I are one, Father. I pray that they'll be one. And then he went and he died on the cross and he made that unity possible. And our job is to live into the unity that God provided for us through his death and his resurrection on the cross. So be one. And then in, in chapter 2, verses, the second part of verse 3 and 4, he says, In humility, value others above yourselves. Humble yourselves. You see it there? In humility, humble, in humility, value others above yourselves. And verse 4 says, don't look to your own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Be self-sacrificing. Serve others. This is all in the context of unity. Paul is writing to us and helping us to know how to be united. This is how you are to be united. As a matter of fact, let me give you an example of how you're to be united. You're to be united in this, in this way. You're to have the attitude of Christ. And when you have the attitude of Christ, then you'll be united. And what was Christ's attitude? That he humbled himself in, in humility and he served us. And Paul is saying, if you want unity... If you want unity in your home, if you want unity in your church, if you want unity in your community, then you have to humble yourselves and serve. He says your attitude, your mindset, your way of thinking, your way of responding to one another is to be the same as Christ Jesus. But the problem is, this goes against everything we're taught. This goes against everything we're taught from the earliest of age. One of the first words kids learn to say is mine. This is mine. And we spend the rest of our lives 
deciding and defining what is ours. What did we work for? What did we earn? What is ours? It is, it is part of our human nature to grasp our power, to grasp our position, to grasp our possessions. It's part of the human nature to figure out what is ours and to hold them close. That's just how, how God is, or the fallen world has, has played it out for us to be. And God is saying, no, that's not how I want it to be. And the fact of the matter is if you live into this, if you actually have the mindset of Christ for the outside world, you will look weak. You will look weak and people will take advantage of you. You will look weak. Think about it. Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he let go of his advantage and he was beaten and he was spit upon and he was nailed to a tree he didn't look strong in that moment now we know the rest of the story and we know that he was and we know that it took great courage guess what it takes great courage and strength there is nothing easy about following Jesus this is not a religion for wimps it is very hard to give up your rights and to walk in humility and humble yourselves before others and serve because the outside world will see it as weakness and they will take advantage of you. So one of the things I did this week, uh, it, was, it was a good exercise for me, is I started just asking people, you know, if scriptures tell us that we are to humble ourselves, that we have two choices. We can either not humble ourselves and God's going to humble us, and that sounds scary to me, or we can do what the passage says and humble yourselves before the Lord and God will lift you up. And I started asking the question, well, how? How do you humble yourselves? That's a great, one of those you know, we have all kinds of little spiritual quips that we say, but sometimes we never stop and ask the real question like, oh yeah, like how do I actually do that? So I started asking the staff this question. Patrick gave me the best answer. Patrick said that he just plays golf and that humbles him, but I think there might be more going on there. So how do we humble ourselves? And I want to just give you a list. And the reason I want to give you a list is because if this is part of what God is calling us to, if this is how we are to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus, then we need to start with humbling ourselves. So it starts with prayer. It absolutely starts with prayer. If you are willing to go before the living God and say, I need you. I cannot have the attitude of Christ Jesus without you. I cannot live into anything that Brian preaches or Doug preaches or, or, or Scott preached last week. I cannot, I cannot deal with my suffering the way Scott pushed us towards last week. Lord, I am incapable of doing this. I need you. It starts with prayer. It starts with admitting that you need the living God in your life to even closely follow the works in Scripture and the, the, the words in Scripture. So it starts with prayer. And the fact of the matter is, this is what God has been convicted of me about. When I don't pray, when I have those seasons of time where I'm not praying, it's because I think I'm clever enough. It's because I think I'm good enough, because I think I'm talented enough. And we make the same mistake as a church. We have amazing talent. We just saw it up here on the stage. I mean, we can very easily get comfortable and think we have it all together. But if we really realize that it's, it means nothing unless God shows up. So prayer is an awesome way to humble yourselves. So it starts, it ends. Prayer is a big part of it. A, a big way of humbling yourself is just remembering where you've been. Remember your own sin. Remember what God has brought you out of. Remember how you were caught up in your own self. Remember the work of God in your life. That, that act of remembering your own sin and remembering the grace of God in your life is an incredibly humbling sort of thing. And the truth of the matter is when we really meditate and understand how far we've, how much God has forgiven us, we become people who offer that same grace to others. When you know the grace that you've received, you tend to be a person who extends that grace to other people. 
confessing your sins honestly to God. Just being willing to say, I screwed up again. I know we've been working on this, God. I know you've been talking to me about it, but there I go. I did it again. I, 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 I used that, that wrong finger in my car, and I'm sorry, Lord. I, I, I said what I shouldn't have said. I used a word I shouldn't have used. I was angry when I shouldn't have been angry. I spoke to my wife the way I shouldn't have. I spoke to my kids. Whatever it is, being willing to just say, God, I did it again, and I'm sorry, and inviting the Spirit of God into it, that's a way of humbling yourself. This is a hard one. Asking forgiveness of those you sin against, even if in your mind you think they started it. You don't know what they did. You have no idea how much they hurt me. You have no idea how wrong they've been. But in the process of them being wrong, you've also crossed the line and you sit against them. A great way to humble yourself is to go to that person and say, I want to apologize. I want to apologize for the words I used. I want to apologize for the things that I said and expect nothing in return. Sometimes we'll give an apology because we want to coerce the other person into apologizing back. But a true apology can be a very humbling experience. It's one of the ways God will use for us to humble ourselves. Avoid excuses. I know I flew off the handle, but you have no idea how much pressure I'm under. God's not in that. Avoid excuses. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. It takes humility to stop talking. It takes humility to know that you may have something to say, but you don't need to say it. And then this one I put in for myself, don't be right all the time. I really like being right. I really, really like being right. So the point there is sometimes you just got to trust the sovereignty of God. You just got to say, look, my opinion isn't necessary to this. I don't have to express myself in every situation. Being willing to just let go of knowing that you're right. This is a hard one, often very hard in the home for us to to deal with, but it's a good way to, to humble yourself. Don't defend yourself. Be willing to share your struggles and weaknesses with others. This is a hard one in the church. This is a really hard one in the church. We have a, a mentoring group, a discipleship group that we, we go through uh, nine months of discipleship with. And last week, the conversation was, I want to be a Christian, but I want to be honest. I want to be a Christian, but I want to be honest. I want to walk with the Lord, but I want to be able to say, when God doesn't make any sense, I don't get God at all. I want to be a Christian, but I want to be able to struggle. I want to be a Christian, but I don't want to put on falsehoods. I want to be a Christian, and I don't want to put on pretense. I just want to work out my salvation before the Lord in an honest way. And can I tell you, this is not always a safe place to do that. Sometimes we expect things out of each other, but a good way to humble yourself is just to say what you're feeling. This does not make sense to me at all. I do not understand the mind of God. I do not understand why God allows certain things to happen. Allowing us to struggle in an honest way is a great way to humble yourselves. Be willing to do a job that at first glance you think is beneath you. You see something that needs to be done and you think, oh, that's not my job. Somebody else will do it. Go ahead and do it. And then the last one is ask for help. Some of the most gracious people I know, some of the most servant-oriented people I know would never in a million years ask for help for themselves. Look, I'm struggling. Can you help me? Look, I'm not getting what I need. Can you do that for me? That is an incredible way to humble yourselves and invite other people into your life in such a way that they can serve you. It takes great humility to admit when you need help. Paul's telling us, he's saying, look, your mindset, your attitude, your way of responding to one another should be the same as Christ Jesus. 
who humbled himself. And he's saying to you and I, we need to be people who humble ourselves before God. And then Jesus served us. He became a slave. He served. And that's the second part. So we humble ourselves. If we want unity in the church, if we want unity in our homes, we humble ourselves and we have to be people who serve. So we have six essentials here at Grace. You hear it all the time. But there are six essentials to your spiritual growth. You need to come to church. You need to be here on Sunday. There's something happens in corporate worship. Something happened in my heart this Sunday as we sat and sang. I came in here a little off kilter. I came in here, just I don't even know what the deal was, but something happened sitting here in the first service singing here. There's something that God does in corporate worship that can be very amazing for you. There's something that happens when we sit around and study the word of God together and hear a sermon that you need to gather. You need to make this a priority. You need to connect. You cannot do life alone. You have to be in community with other people. You have to be sharing your faith with each other. You have to be encouraging one another. So you have to connect with one another and you have to serve. The other three is that you be a person of influence, that you are telling people about this Jesus that you serve. It's a command that we are to go. We are to make disciples of all nations. So we need to be people of influence. We need to be people of devotion. The eyes of the Lord took to and fro, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him so he can show himself strong. We need to be people who are devoted to God, and we need to be generous, giving away the things that God gives to us, being willing to let go of our possessions. But we talk about serving. We talk about serving because Jesus actually said, I came as the one to serve. I came to serve. I came to be a slave. And we are supposed to have the same attitude right? The same mindset, the same way of behaving as Jesus. If we are going to be like Jesus, if we are going to be a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus, then we have to be people who serve. And the beauty is serving in itself is an incredible way to humble yourself. When we begin to serve in the context of the church, we begin to realize that the church isn't all about us. We actually begin to break down what is very ingrained in our DNA of being consumers. We are master consumers, especially in the American way of thinking. We are consumers at our core. And so we begin to think of church as another place to consume, another place to come and take something. But the truth of the matter is, if we're going to live into an attitude of Christ Jesus, then we should come to church to give something as well as receive something. We should come to church in a way to serve one another, to love one another well, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We talk all the time about serving at grace. It's not because we have to have more people. It's because when you serve, you are learning to be more like Christ. I love the fact that in your bulletin this week, there's a card. That card is just letting you know that there are not enough people serving in the children's ministry. There are too few people carrying the load to take care of, care of the kids. And we need more people. It's a great chance for you to serve. It's a great chance for you to take out that card, you fill it out, you pick a few Sundays, and you're there. Why? Because when you serve, you humble yourself. When you serve, you're giving back to other people. We need to continue to, to, to move forward with our children's ministry. One of the strengths of this church is the way we, we handle children and the way we handle youth. I say it all the time. People, people come to Grace and they say, I visited Grace But the reason we came back is my kids loved it. Well, the reason they love it is because we have an amazing group of volunteers who are pouring into those kids on a weekly basis. So fill out the card. Fill out the card and drop it off. Help them out. Serve. Humble yourself and serve. And God will exalt you. Here's what I want you to hear. It's not just about the church. If we really want unity in our home, 
then we have to let go of what's rightfully ours. We have to not grasp onto our power and position. We have to let go, live open-handedly. We have to humble ourselves and we have to serve. If you want unity in your home, outserve your spouse. If you want unity in your home, outserve your kids. I know that's, I, every time I say it, I think that's funny. Like, how hard is that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. But how about this? Kids, young people, you want unity in your house? Why don't you outserve your parents? Yeah, somebody likes that. Look, there is something that happens when we serve. You want to have unity in your neighborhood, then serve. Humble yourself and serve. You want to know what's going to change Detroit is when people humble themselves and serve. That's what creates unity. That's what creates movement. And here's, here's the amazing thing. Jesus humbled himself and he served to make God known. Jesus humbled himself and served to the glory of God, to make God's love known. When we humble ourselves and we serve in the context of our home, we make God known. You want your kids to know who Jesus is? Then humble yourself and serve them. You want your spouse to know who Jesus is? Then humble yourself and serve them. You want your neighbors to know who Jesus is? Then humble yourself and serve them. Do you want the city of Detroit and, and our community to know who God is? And we have to humble ourselves and we have to serve. That's how we bring glory to God and that's how we make God known. Paul says, look, your attitude, your mindset, your way of thinking, it's supposed to be the same as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That's what Jesus did for us. And he's saying, now go, be that to other people. Hey, Melissa's going to come up, and we're going to sing another song. And the reason I want to do a song is I want to give you a chance to maybe breathe this in. We've covered a lot of ground. This is a, there's a lot in this passage of Scripture. And I just want you to be able to sit with it. And I want you to hear the challenge of the Holy Spirit. Look, none of us are there, but there may be places where you know, look, I can do a better job in this particular case or in this particular case. So Ron and Mel are going to come up. I just want you to listen. I want you to sing, but I want you to invite the Spirit of God into this. What does it look like for you to have the attitude of Christ Jesus? Lord, thank you so much for your word. I love Philippians. And I have... Just, I love what you're doing in us and, and through this book. Lord, thank you for who you are. Lord, thank you for the challenge that Paul gives us to live like Jesus, to have the same mindset as Jesus, to have the same attitude as Jesus. Lord, uh, we confess that we're not there. But we also hear the invitation you give us to move towards you and to be more and more and more like your son. Lord, we really do want to be a mosaic, striving together, locking arms to live like Jesus. We want to have the impact you've called us to have in our community, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, really across the world. Lord, I'm so thankful that you are good. So thankful that your mercy is new every morning. I'm so thankful that you're on the journey with us. Lord, help us to live into Paul's exhortation. In Jesus' name.